From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters Defense with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. Every Wednesday, we focus on defense. I'm Mimi Gerges. The Army will replace its previous unmanned aircraft system with a new tactical drone. The Army Requirements Oversight Council approved the system. The next step in the program is the competitive prototyping phase. The Military Times reports that congressional leaders will investigate U.S. military plans to withdraw troops from Afghanistan. The investigations come after nearly 6,000 American service members were deployed back to Afghanistan for repatriation. The Pentagon has resumed evacuation flights from Afghanistan following its announcement that the Kabul airport is now secure. The Pentagon will continue to evacuate U.S. citizens and foreign allies until August 31st, the deadline for President Biden's full military withdrawal. The United States plans to evacuate thousands of Americans from Afghanistan over the next few days. President Biden wants the military to focus on getting troops and allies out as safely and quickly as possible. Brian Clark is senior fellow at the Hudson Institute. He's former special assistant to the chief of naval operations. Brian, welcome to the program. Thanks, Mimi. It's great to be here. What are the logistics of bringing up to 9,000 people a day out of Afghanistan? What does that look like from a management perspective? Yeah, the challenge is going to be uh, not so much in just the, the number of airplanes you need, because as we've seen, C-17s can carry quite a few people. If you if you think about you know having just four or five hundred people on an airplane, which is certainly feasible, you're only talking about maybe 18 to 20 flights a day out of Afghanistan. Um, and if you're talking about other cargo aircraft or other passenger aircraft, you're looking at in the you know several dozen flights a day. So it's not the flights per se that is the problem. The challenge is getting everyone to the airport, processing everybody, making sure that the right people are getting on the planes. And, and you've got a place for them to go. So it's basically either end of the, the transportation uh, process that, that the management challenge exists. So on that front end in Afghanistan, they have to secure the airport, which they have. But then you've also got to have a way for those folks to get to the airport. Um, you know, and there's checkpoints being established and, and you know, there's somewhat uh, a chaotic situation in the capital. So getting folks to the airport is just uh, a challenge from a transportation standpoint. And then being able to ensure that you've got the right people on the airplanes is the other problem. Um, and then, then once once they leave, then, then where do they go? Because there's, you know, they're, they're going to be coming potentially to the United States. Uh, there's a repatriation process. There's a visa process. There's uh, third-party countries that are going to take some of these folks. So there's a management challenge involved in just making sure that you understand where each person is going and what their status is from an immigration standpoint. You know, I wonder, obviously, in addition to the tens of thousands of U.S. citizens, there are estimates of 80,000 Afghan civilians that helped us over the course of the past 20 years. Has the U.S. military ever done an evacuation of civilians at that scale before? Uh, not really. Uh, so this would be um, in a short time frame, uh, one of the largest evacuations of this kind. Um, obviously, during the Cold War, there were various you know lifts, you know, like the Berlin Airlift, et cetera. But those are mostly about bringing things in as opposed to taking people out. Um, but uh, non-combatant evacuation operations, or NEOs as we call them, um, generally are not this large. They're in the maybe 10,000 person size, size range. Um, so this would be definitely one of the largest ones, if not the largest one ever. Um, and it could take all the way to the 31st. I mean, if you think about it, if you've got 80,000 people that need to leave and we're getting out, 
you know, 9,000 or so a day, you're, you're probably going to take all the way to the 31st to get out 80,000 people or more. Um, so it's going to be a tough, uh, you know, go to make sure that you drive this all the way to completion. Brian, what about the cost? What does the budget look like for the evacuation? Well, so um, these, of course, it costs a lot of money to mobilize this sort of effort, uh, sending the 6,000 plus troops into Afghanistan that have been sent there. Uh, that's going to have a, a cost associated with it. So you're, you're looking at potentially in the hundreds of millions of dollars to both deploy the troops that are there now to secure the, the withdrawal and then conduct the withdrawal and process those fo- those folks. So it's it could be you know, $100 million or more to be able to uh, complete that operation. Um, and then there's you know costs down the line in terms of how do we get those people into the right places and what's their their status uh, following their, re- their their arrival in the United States, for example, how do we assist them in transitioning to become American residents? So NATO, NATO has also been conducting evacuations as well as our European allies. What do we know about the coordination among those groups and the Pentagon? Yeah, so the coordination seems to not have been as tight as it might have been in other NATO operations. Uh, the Allies have complained a little bit that there has not been as as close the collaboration here as there was in the offensive operation in, in Afghanistan. Um, so now that the U.S. is withdrawing, uh, it seems like they they consulted NATO but didn't really work with NATO to come up with a, a firm plan for how that was going to all happen. So the Allies have been all kind of independently pursuing withdrawal of their personnel as well as the citizens or the Afghans that help them. Um, so they're all pursuing kind of independent actions. Um, There's some collaboration, obviously, but it seems like it's a lot of independent activities happening on the part of the different NATO allies. You know, the president has always said that our goals in Afghanistan have been counterterrorism, not counterinsurgency, not nation building. What are the Pentagon's options here for future counterterrorism operations in Afghanistan if that becomes necessary? Yeah, so they're they're somewhat limited. Um, you know, clearly, uh, having people on the ground in Afghanistan continuously uh, affords you this uh, intelligence gathering apparatus that could really help you know give you a sense of you know, what the network is doing and where it might be going. Um, and it's not just having U.S. Uh, personnel on the ground to be able to do that intelligence work. Actually, more importantly, it was about having Afghan uh, citizens or Afghan residents that were willing to provide information to U.S., NATO, and Afghan military forces. And without the U.S. there, that those networks are going to break down probably, so you're not going to have this this network of uh, informants and, and intelligence sources. Um, so folks on the ground, the, the, the information on the ground is probably not going to be there to the same degree. We're going to have to rely to a much greater degree on cyber intelligence, uh, space-based intelligence, um, you know, the occasional third-party um, actor that is able to gather intelligence on our behalf. So it's going to be a little harder to understand what's happening on the ground. And then to intervene is going to require air power. Uh, and that's going to be hard given that um, to get to Afghanistan from our bases in the Gulf, you have to go around Iran. So it makes it a very long flight, involves a lot of uh, logistics that are going to add to the cost and, and the challenge of doing this. And it's going to take logistics assets away from the Pacific, where the tyranny of range is very challenging already. Um, so that's going to be a problem. And then the you know the, the other op- uh, option is naval options, uh, where you can go from the sea using carrier-based aircraft and fly uh, over Pakistan to get to Afghanistan. Um, that's a lot more uh, feasible. Um, it's just that that'll take ships away from operations over in the Pacific as well, where they're needed to address the China uh, challenge. Finally, Brian, what other managerial aspects will the Pentagon be following here? What's coming next in the next few days? 
So the the focus will be on getting out the uh, the citizens, um, U.S. citizens and Afghanis that are going to be uh, brought out of the country, um, and the others that will want to come out of the country. So there's going to be a challenge in terms of how to manage that uh, that immigration process almost. Um, and then there's just the logistical challenge of being able to sh- ensure that you've got sufficient airlift going into and out of the country and the air traffic control. And then the biggest challenge is going to be managing that final set of flights. So as you're starting to collapse down your 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 circle of control at the airport, um, that's going to be the probably the most challenging time of any withdrawal. Is is that time when you're actually just about ready to leave with all of your forces? Um, how do you collapse down that bubble? How do you ensure that the last remaining you know troops on the ground are not going to be themselves vulnerable? And it seems like the Taliban has decided to take a you know, wait and see attitude. Uh, and if they just sort of uh, hang back and wait for the U.S. to leave, then that'll be great. Uh, if there's some reason for them to initiate some kind of hostilities, that would be the time to do it. Well, Brian, this is uh, definitely a developing story, so we'll continue to follow it. Thanks so much for being on the program. Thanks, Mimi. It was great to see you. Coming next, embarking on an innovation journey at the Pentagon. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the two thorny challenges that could get in the way. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. There are two issues the Defense Department will need to address on the path to innovation, intellectual property and security. That's according according to Jerry McGinn, Executive Director of the Center for Government Contracting at George Mason University. He's former Principal Deputy Director for Manufacturing and Industrial-Based Policy. Jerry, welcome to the program. Great to be here with you, Mimi. So what is the issue with intellectual property? Is it, say, that a contractor creates software for the DOD would they own the rights to that product? How does that work? Yeah, so uh, intellectual property is the lifeblood of innovation, and it has been for you know our entire kind of history. And in the Department of Defense, it matters a lot. And during the Cold War, stealth technology, you know, was helped win the Cold War. It was a big, it was intellectual property, and it was all defense focused. A lot of those. Uh, but today, what you see is intellectual. The the cutting edge innovation in the Department of Defense is things like artificial intelligence, uh, robotics, autonomy. These are heavily commercially, heavily software um, driven um, activities, and they have their intellectual property is is um, is mostly commercial. So, it, cha- the that dealing with that um, as the Department of Defense is, is becoming a, a more savvy customer uh, is is a big big uh, focus area that needs to be addressed. And the department has taken a step here. They've uh, they've announced, they've published a policy on intellectual property back in late 2019 to be more proactive and negotiate up front. Uh, and they've actually got a, a call out for inputs on this. But, you know, there seems to be some challenges in actually getting that to um, implement it, which we'll talk about. Yes, we will talk about that. But first, explain the issue with security. Yeah. So security is, you know, like innovation is, is a lifeblood for how the department is going to maintain with China. But uh, security is, a, is an important part of that. You've got to you've got to develop the, uh, the technologies through intellectual property. Then you've got to protect them. Um, and that is that's really much more difficult now with when it's very heavily commercially driven innovation. Uh, and you've seen with the solar winds attack, um, um, cyber attack. And uh, with the recent um, DOJ indictment of four Chinese individuals that were, you know, trying to get uh, intellectual property at universities, at defense contractors, and so on, the, 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 our sources of innovation are being attacked, and we have to protect them. 
Jerry, can you give me an example of how either the lack of IP protections or security protections could end up hindering defense innovation? Yeah, so if you've got, um, you know, if you've got, for in the case of IP, if the government decides, you know, hey, we want unlimited rights so we can maintain and, and develop this uh, system as it goes throughout its life cycle, and they don't come to agree with a company, uh, a company may say, you know, I don't want to give up those rights. I'm going to walk away and, and not compete for this program, which means that DOD won't get that potential innovation. Uh, in the case of security, uh, the if um, if a you know if a program is being conducted um, on say robotics and uh, you've got uh, government customers uh, government um, personnel and university personnel and, and industry personnel working on it and th that that uh, the, the information proprietary information is compromised by a, a cyber attack or uh, some other kind of espionage then that will end up destroying or um, reducing the, the military advantage for the, for the United States. Well, speaking of espionage, uh, what have the Chinese been doing to steal U.S. military know-how? You mentioned the four individuals that were indicted. How successful have they been at, at taking um, American military intellectual property? Yeah, now there, um, there have been a number of reports done on this. And unfortunately, if you look at the the actual silhouette of the Chinese advanced fighter, it sadly looks a lot like our F-35. So, you know, there's been a lot of documented intellectual property theft, um, espionage that um, has uh, has gone to China. And, um, you know, most of that would be classified, but the stuff in the public domain, you just have to look at some of the Chinese systems and you see uh, the, uh, the outcomes of that theft. So what kind of policy changes do you recommend for the Defense Department to handle this in a better way to be more proactive? Yeah, so it's uh, great. Um, so in the, in, the, in the issue of intellectual property, I think both government industry are looking to, to find ways to work together. It's, it's just the devil's in the details, right? So um, one area which would be, I think, bene mutually beneficial is to look for beneficial mutual beneficial licensing rights where um, commercial industry or traditional defense contractors and, and the Department of Defense come to agreement on how to do that with programs in advance. So the question is um, where to do that into the in, in the acquisition program? Is it done during the pre-solicitation phase? Is it done during the competition, after competition? It's not really clear the best place to do that. So we need to come to agreement on that and kind of pursue that. And I see that's a real opportunity for the, the still arriving officials in the, uh, the Biden administration to the Pentagon to really kind of take what's already been done and go to the next step. Um, and on security, I think you've got a number of initiatives going on, the cybersecurity maturation model certification, as well as the, the recent um, House on Services Task Force on Critical uh, Materials um, and Supply Chain Security. There's a lot of efforts on supply chain um, uh, visibility and on cybersecurity that uh, I think the department can carry them to the next step and there are there are a number of ways to do that. Uh, Jerry, very quickly, do you have recommendations for software companies that might be worried about protecting their IP and security in working with the Defense Department? Yes, I think uh, transparency is the key. I mean, I, I think software companies that are looking to, you know, to help partner with the Department of Defense and serve the nation, um, you know, should, you know, they need to be transparent with the government and, but also protect their rights. So I think you've got to look for ways to find mutually beneficial situations. So that requires both government and industry to be open and transparent on this. And I do see that there are real win-win opportunities um, 
uh, if we just kind of roll up our sleeves and um, and and take a take that approach. Great, Jerry. Thanks so much for being on the program. Nice talking to you. Great to great to meet you. Up next, the Pentagon uses a 50-year-old budget planning system. Straight ahead on Government Matters, looking at how to bridge gaps and bring DOD toward the future. You can find every episode of our show and our podcast at govmatters.tv. I'll be right back. The Defense Department's current budget system plans funding for five years out. Now the Senate Armed Services Committee wants to reform DOD's planning, programming, budget, and execution, or PPBE process. Eric Lofgren is a senior fellow at the Center for Government Contracting at George Mason University. Eric, welcome to the program. You're welcome. DOD still uses management systems that were designed in the industrial era. This is over 50 years ago. What was this PPBE created to do and how is it working now? Right. Yeah, the PPBE or the PPB system at the time was really a revolutionary and radical kind of idea. And one of the things that it was trying to do was actually uh, reduce duplication and overlap. So you might have multiple systems like, you know, uh, an aircraft carrier and a long range bomber, which was one of the, the issues in the late 40s. Um, and there might not be enough resources, but the budget doesn't um, have the ability to control what the services were actually doing. So the primary concept of the PBBE is to create um, the programming system where a budget line item actually looks like something like a specific weapon system, an F-16, a striker combat vehicle, for example. And while this seems natural enough, it's actually a sharp break from traditional budgeting practices, as well as the practices that now exist in the commercial sector and the international governments as well. And the reason is because this programming system requires a great deal of prediction and consensus actually about future technologies and concepts of operations. And these predictions are not only prone to error, they create these very long decision lead times and, and lock-in effects. So. The average age of a major development or procurement program is actually over 14 years old today. That was like before Amazon or right when Amazon AWS in the cloud was really coming out. So you can get an idea of when the requirements and technologies were really being formulated for well, these. Eric, programs. tell me tell me a little bit more about how this is limiting DOD operations. Obviously, as you said, we didn't have high tech back when this thing was created. So how is this a problem for de defense acquisition? Yeah, one of the, of course, not only does it create a long lead time, like it takes three years to get something new into the budget or to cancel or ramp up or ramp down, because once that budget goes, you're kind of locked into those program stovepipes. And to give you an idea, uh, the median, like more than 50% of Army research and development programs are less than $24 million in the FY22 budget. And so they have to predict that three years out, and then they have limited opportunity to be able to actually reallocate that. And so it creates this kind of lock-in effect as well, and, and the long decision lead times again. But the real problem here is that in the past, the Department of Defense was kind of leading or doing this requirements pull on technology, whereas today, commercial technology is actually, in some cases, leading the way, and the DOD needs to be able to have a opportunistic approach to be able to pull in these commercial technologies um, in a more rapid and 
actually commercially viable way so that the DOD is able to take advantage of all the great things happening in the commercial sector and make them dual use. Eric, what is the valley of death? Because it sounds very ominous. <laughs> so the valley of death, of course, is that time of transition between like a science and technology or kind of like a startup idea into what we call a program of record. And of course, there was no such thing as a program of record prior to the PBBE process, right? In the 1950s, there was no such thing. Um, you had these portfolio budgets where, uh, you know, leaders with discretion were actually able to make opportunity cost trade-offs within the year of execution. Whereas today, you would have to actually predict what the prototype was gonna do and what it would enable you to do, you know, before it was done so that you had the money three years lined up ahead of time to transition it. So that gap of when the prototype happens and when the money is available is called the Valley of Death. And of course, the DOD prototyping guide from 2019 targets actually the PBBE as a primary cause of this Valley of Death or the lack of scaling of new technologies into major defense programs. What about Congress? What have the recent discussions been there for reforming this whole process? Yeah, so there's actually been a flurry of uh, interest in this in Congress. So Jack Reed, the chairman of the Senate Armed Services Committee, and uh, Adam Smith as well, the chair of the House Armed Services Committee, have been looking at this and talking about it openly. The Senate has, in their report on the, the draft NDAA, National Defense Authorization Act for 22, actually recommended having a commission, a major commission on PBBE reform to look at this and really, you know, for the first time since the 60s, take a real hard look at the resourcing and requirements system and as well as oversight. Whereas the, the House Armed Services Committee, their report did not include that same commission. It was slightly scoped down to specifically look at the, the Valley of Death issue and was looking for a report from the Secretary of Defense on how to, to scale that. But of course, this, the Valley of Death issue is really a symptom of a broader governance struggle um, in the PBBE. All right, very good, Eric. Thanks so much for being on the program. You're welcome. If you miss an episode of Government Matters or want to see it again, it's at govmatters.tv. And connect with us on social media. We want to know your thoughts and suggestions for the program. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, and subscribe to the Government Matters YouTube channel. I'll be right back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Katherine Roloff and Drew Friedman. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Our director of content is Alan Holmes. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.